Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. Almost 2,000 years ago, a man by the name of Jesus would enter the holy city of Jerusalem one last time. He'd been there before. Growing up as a child, his parents would take him there for Passover celebrations and different festivals. As he became an adult and set out on his ministry journey and gathered the 12 disciples with him, he would go each year to celebrate the Passover there. But this time was different. This would have been the first Palm Sunday ever known to mankind. That Palm Sunday would be the beginning of a week mixed with so many different emotions, not just for Jesus, but his followers. Because he would enter Jerusalem as a king, but would exit as a criminal just days later. Being condemned to the worst kind of death the world had ever known, not only at that time, but probably ever in human history, execution by death by hanging on a cross. A slow, painful, gruesome sight to behold. This Palm Sunday, as we reflect on that narrative, as we reflect on Jesus, we're going to be looking at Mark's account of this so-called triumphal entry. We're going to look at Mark's account because not many people look at Mark's account. We look at all the other gospel writers' account, but Mark's is short and succinct, much like the rest of his book. The Gospel of Mark technically is 15 chapters according to some manuscripts, 16 chapters according to other ancient manuscripts. The Gospel of Matthew is 28 chapters. The Gospel of Luke is 24 chapters. The Gospel of John's 21 chapters. Mark writes as the scribe, if you will, of the Apostle Peter. More than likely, the words we get from Mark's Gospel are the very eyewitness, is the very eyewitness account of Peter himself. You know, the one who was called the rock on whom God's church would be built, but also the one on whom, uh, uh, whom Jesus called Satan and said, get behind me. Mark chapter 11 is where we'll be today. Jesus, like I said, was entering Jerusalem for the very last time. He was entering Jerusalem, and he pulled out all the stops. And how did he do that? Well, he set up certain things, and he entered the city in a way that he had never entered the city before. He had coordinated the event as almost as if to say, it's now time for people to know who I really am. Countless times he had already said, don't tell everybody yet. Don't tell anybody that I'm the person. Don't tell anybody yet about me. 
But Palm Sunday, that very first Sunday, the beginning of this holy passion week, Jesus says it's time. Mark chapter 11, starting with verse 1. As Jesus' disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the towns of Bethpage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives. Bethany and Bethpage, how do you describe them? They're not even villages. They are just extremely small towns. They would be in the region there where the Mount of Olives is, probably there on the hillside on the Mount of Olives, and you could see Jerusalem not too far away. They would have been maybe a mile away from Jerusalem. There's another significant story that happens in Bethany. You remember Mary and Martha and Lazarus, their brother? Do you remember the story of Jesus being told that Lazarus is about to die? They send a message to him. Do you remember this? And it says he waited. What town does he go to? He goes to Bethany, just outside of Jerusalem, where he works this miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead. And now, in his final approach to Jerusalem, in the final week of his life, more than likely, most scholars believe he stayed at the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus in Bethany. As they were approaching and they got to Bethany and Bethpage, Jesus sent two of them on ahead. He says, go into that village over there, he told them. And as soon as you enter it, you'll see a young donkey tied there that no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, what are you doing? Just say the Lord needs it and we'll return it soon. So the two disciples left and found the colt standing in the street tied outside the front door. And as they were untying it, some bystanders demanded, what are you doing untying that colt? And they said Jesus they said what Jesus had told them to say, and then they were permitted to take it. They brought the colt to Jesus, and then they threw their garments over it, and he sat on it. Many in the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him, and others spread leafy branches they had cut in the fields. Jesus was in the center of the procession. Where do we get Palm Sunday from? That was leafy branches. Matthew and Luke's gospel don't tell us that it was palms. Where do these things come into play? Well, John's gospel is the only gospel that mentions they were palm branches. More than likely, because the Festival of Tabernacles was close at hand, they would use a bunch of different leafy branches. Palms would have probably been a, a part of that process. But what do they do? They're shouting and they're waving these branches in the air. And some of the Gospels tell us they lay down not only the branches on the pathway where the colt is coming through, but they lay down their cloaks as well, which would have been that outer robe that most men would have worn, or all men would have worn during that day. And the people all around him, as he's entering Jerusalem on that colt, are shouting, praise God. Some of your verses of Scripture may actually read, Hosanna, Hosanna to God in the highest. 
Blessing on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessings on the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Praise God in the highest heaven. So Jesus came to Jerusalem and he went into the temple. After looking around carefully at everything, he left because it was late in the afternoon. Then he returned to Bethany with the 12 disciples. Why did I choose this one today? Why didn't I choose a more descriptive passage? Because I want you, see, I want you to see the simplicity of Mark's gospel and to understand without any other factors the whole purpose for Jesus' arrival in the way he arrived into Jerusalem that day. Unlike the other gospel accounts of this passage, scholar and author Donald English writes, for Mark, it is the lowliness and the humility of the entry into Jerusalem which matters, not its triumphal nature. It is a kingship of hidden majesty, of humble power to save. When somebody was being coronated king in that day, they wouldn't get on a donkey except to explain a significant issue about what they were really all about. Kings of that day would come in might and pomp and circumstance. And you might say, but they were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna to God in the highest. Praise the Lord. Yes, they were, and he was being celebrated as he entered. But he didn't enter in pomp and circumstance. He didn't orchestrate that all he had orchestrated was go over there to that town and get me that colt, that donkey that's never been ridden. And when they ask, just say I'm the Lord. When they ask, just tell them that the Lord needs it. Here's the key point this morning. Jesus entered Jerusalem as a king, was crucified as a criminal, and in so doing fulfilled the will of the Father in heaven. You might say, but it doesn't end there, Brandon. He rose from the grave. That's next week. Okay, so hold on with me this week. We'll get there next week. How does Mark's specific passage of Jesus' entry testify to this fact? Let's look. Let's look at the young donkey or the donkey's colt. John Grasmick writes, Mark recorded the disciples carrying out Jesus' instructions, demonstrating the detailed accuracy of his prediction. This highlighted the untying of the colt, which Jesus may have intended as a messianic sign. You can read that in Genesis 49, which we'll get to in just a moment. There's this allusion to a passage there in Genesis that Mark seems to be making. And you have to understand the context of the Old Testament and how it foreshadows things to come. What line would Jesus come through? What would his ancestry and lineage be? David, King David, the great and mighty King David of the Old Testament. First, second Samuel. Read about it. He was the one who God gave this unconditional covenant with. There are conditional covenants and unconditional covenants in the Old Testament. To David, God gave an unconditional covenant. That means I'm going to do for you even if you break your end of the covenant. Okay? That means I will continue to do exactly what I promised to do for you even if you royally 
literally, mess it up. And so God had told David, you will always have somebody to sit on the throne. You will always have a descendant that sits on the throne forever and ever. So Jesus comes in the line of David. But David would have been in the line of what group of kings? What tribe would David be tied to of the 12 tribes of Israel? Judah. So let's take a look at Genesis 49. It's not on your screen. You have to turn there in your Bible. In case you're curious, it's the very first book of the Bible. It's really easy to find. Genesis 49. We're going to start with verse 8, and I'm reading from the New Living Translation. I want you to get the setting here. Jacob, of Jacob and Esau, the son of Isaac, the grandson of Abraham. Jacob would be the one that the tribes of Israel would emanate from. And before his death, Jacob brings all of his sons into the room, and Joseph's sons, well, not Joseph's sons, that was a different blessing at a different time, but he brings his biological sons into the room from his four different wives, which is a whole different topic for a whole different time. Don't get off in the weeds on that one, all right? We'll talk about it later. And he begins to bless them. He knows his time on earth is short. He's getting ready to die. And so he wants to give a final, final words to each of his sons. Listen to what he says to Judah. Judah, verse 8. Your brothers will praise you. You will grasp your enemies by the neck. And all your relatives will bow before you. Judah, my son, is a young lion that has finished eating its prey. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down like a lioness who dares to rouse him. Then verse 10. The scepter will not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from his descendants. Did you ever catch that when you read that? Maybe you've never read that before. What does the scepter signify? Royalty, kingship. It's a fleeting thing. If we're, if we're not careful, we glance over it. <clears throat> David stands out as this great king of Jerusalem, this great king of Judah, who God gives his promise to. But Judah himself was given this promise? How many centuries do you think it would take for that to come to fulfillment? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from his descendants until the coming, listen to this, until the coming of the one whom it belongs. Whom what belongs? The scepter. Who is the rightful owner or recipient of that scepter? Well, he goes on. The one whom all nations will honor. The one whom all nations will honor. You mean he will be the king of kings and the Lord of lords? Then in verse 11, listen to this. He ties his foal to a grapevine, the colt of his donkey to a choice vine, and his robes in the blood of grapes. 
Any foreshadowing there? Because Jesus comes in as a mighty victor, the one who is the rightful heir to the throne of David. And it says, he will ride in on the colt of a donkey, not as a mighty warrior, on a horse. Horses were made for battle. You don't see, see people in that day and age riding into battle on donkeys. I mean, that would be a sight. The braying of donkeys. And you know how stubborn donkeys can be? Can you imagine great and mighty warriors riding in on donkeys or mules? You know, the symbol of a donkey is a symbol of peace. And when Jacob blesses Judah... And he tells them that your descendants will be the ones to reign on the throne. The scepter will be handed down from generation to generation until the one finally comes. The one to whom it rightfully belongs. And he will, un, he will ride in on a donkey. And his blood, or his robes will be stained by the blood of grapes. Huh. His eyes are darker than wine, and his teeth are whiter than milk. I wish my teeth were whiter than milk. They're yellower than a crayon. <laughs> I'm just kidding. That's disgusting. I'm just checking to see if you're still with me here. Are you here? Okay, good. Jesus would ultimately come from this line of Judah and the line of David. He would be the one at a time when Israel did not exist as a nation, but they existed as a people. And he would come and would establish his kingdom forever. And of that kingdom, there would be no end. And he would start out that journey as a peaceful king riding in to that holy city of David on the donkey. And yes, his robes would be stained literally with the blood of his own sacrifice. You see, this passage, <clears throat> this passage is, is quoted and is referenced not only in Genesis 49, but also Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, one of the prophets of the Old Testament. Zechariah proclaims and foreshadows rejoice O people of Zion what is Zion it's just another name for Jerusalem the holy city of God the city of David rejoice O people of Zion shout in triumph O people of Jerusalem look your king is coming to you he's righteous and victorious yet he's humble riding on a donkey riding on a donkey's colt. Theologian and scholar Alan Cole explains that Jesus rode into Jerusalem as David or Solomon might have entered the capital with branches and clothes spread on the road before him like a red carpet at an airport today or palm and banana leaves at a village festival in a third world country. We're used to cheering we're used to the cheering crowds 
on these occasions, but these were not summoned by government decree. Do you catch that? This was a spontaneous outbreak of cheers. The local city officials, the Roman officials, the, definitely not the religious leaders, none of them called this spectacle as Jesus entered the city on a donkey's colt. Their chanted slogans were taken from the Psalms and they were held and hailed a coming king of the family of David who would restore the kingdom of Israel to its old glory. <laughs> they were expecting a political and a nationalist leader, perhaps a violent social reformer as many do today. Was this not exactly what Jesus had feared from the start? That all would misunderstand if he claimed to be God's Messiah? Don't tell anybody yet. Don't tell anybody who I am. When you see me raise the dead, heal the sick, don't tell anybody. Because they're going to get the wrong impression. I'm not that kind of king. I'm not coming in to overthrow the social systems. I want you to see God. Because when you've seen me, you've seen the Father, because he and I are one. I want you to see something bigger and beyond what this world has to offer. I don't want you to see me for something I'm not. I want you to see me for who I really am. This is why Jesus, in all of the, almost all of the parables and all of his teachings, the subject matter that he taught on the most was the kingdom of God. It wasn't on forgiveness or redemption, and though those are amazing things. If you actually look at what Jesus taught, the vast amount of subject matter is on the kingdom of God. Why? Because he wants people to see that yes, he is a king, but his kingdom is so much vastly different than the kingdoms of this world. I don't want people to get the wrong idea about who I am and why I came. Even standing in front of Pilate later on that week after he enters Jerusalem, being questioned by Pilate, the Roman governor of the region of Judea. He says, so I hear you're a king. Is that right? What's Jesus tell him? Yeah, my kingdom's not of this world. Because if it were, <clears throat> my disciples would have risen up against you to overthrow you. But my kingdom doesn't work that way. The fact that Jesus rode into town on a donkey signifies the type of king that Jesus is. He's not a warring king of political might and authority. Rather, he's a humble king of peace. The prince of peace, if you will. Conquering injustice through nonviolent means. Ultimately, Jesus would conquer the greatest evils the world has ever known, but he wouldn't do it by force. It would take his very death on the cross to conquer the greatest enemy that any one of us has ever experienced. The enemy of sin. As he hung on the cross, he would utter, the, utter these words, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. 
How many of you all have been in this situation where all you can see is this close in front of you? Figuratively, metaphorically. You see, Jesus, as he's crying out on the cross, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing, he knows that they're seeing a very myopic view of things. That if they could see the bigger picture, if they could understand his message by having ears to hear and eyes to see, they would see so much more. And so Jesus implores God the Father, forgive them. Forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. What about the laying down of cloaks and palm branches and the shouts of Hosanna? You notice that little spot in the Bible is indented? meaning it's a quote from some other part of Scripture or some other book. Donald English explains the disciples and the crowns spreading of cloaks is reminiscent of a customary way of treating a king. The waving of palm branches and other branches and the shouts of Hosanna are usually taken to relate to Psalm 118. The word here is a transliteration of the Aramaic form of the Hebrew used in Psalm 118.25. The word Hosanna, guess what that means? It can mean praise the Lord or it can mean praise God. But if you translate it literally from the Aramaic into Hebrew, and then for our understanding in English, it actually means save now. So Jesus is coming in on a donkey into Jerusalem. And they're saying, save now! They didn't know what they were saying. More than likely, they were just quoting what the Halil is. These are praises that are quoted and sung from the Psalms. Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. We're going to be doing a Seder meal later on this week on Thursday. And we're going to be looking at the Passover celebration the way the Jews would have traditionally celebrated it and look at the equivalent through the eyes of Christ. And in that evening celebration, we will be looking at Psalm 113, 114, 115, 116, 117, and 118. Segments of that the Jews would have recited over and over and over again for centuries prior to Jesus' arrival. And now, Jesus is coming into town, it's Passover, and they're shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, from Psalm 118. Those in front and those behind Jesus who were exclaiming that, who were proclaiming that out loud, although the word means save now, the people were probably not asking God to actually do that. You ever get caught up in tradition? You do something, you get used to doing something, and actually it carries on for generation after generation. Do you forget the meaning of why that tradition is in place to begin with? See, it happens in every culture, in every time period, with every people group. There are traditions that are deeply rooted within cultures. The problem is, however, when those traditions don't reflect truly the purpose they were intended for. We do that today in our churches in America. I don't get my favorite hymn every week. And I don't like the style of music. I got saved by because he lives, I could face tomorrow, or the old rugged cross, or I got saved by 
Great is the Lord and worthy of praise. Or by one of the songs we sung today, and it becomes a very personal and sentimental thing to you because it truly reminds you of the moment you met Christ. But oftentimes we can repeat traditions without any thought for why they exist in the first place. Psalm 118, they're singing and shouting this as they've done every year their whole lifetime and lifetimes prior to that from generations before them. Because that's just what we do. We've always done it this way. My guess is they don't realize they're fulfilling an ancient prophecy to the true Messiah who has come to save now and forevermore. And so as they're proclaiming, Hosanna, Hosanna, and they're laying down their cloaks and their palm branches as if royalty is entering in, they miss the significance of the moment. Because in just a few days, many in that same crowd who had shouted, save now, save now, would be the ones saying, crucify him, crucify him. Jesus entered Jerusalem as a king that day. The people shouted praise to God as he made his way through the cloak and palm branch laden streets, but his kingship would be unlike any other the world has ever known. He would enter Jerusalem as a celebrated figure, one whose fame had preceded him, and Jesus wasn't some obscure, unknown man. He had become known as this miracle worker, this great teacher who could even out-teach the Pharisees. Some of them are probably thinking, maybe he's the one. Maybe he is the one. This is him! Until he gets arrested. Until he gets flogged and nearly beaten to death. And he's standing in front of the crowds of people on the steps of Pilate's palace. Merely the shadow of the man who had entered just a few days before. And like, I guess we were mistaken. Wrong guy. <laughs> but was he? He would enter Jerusalem as a celebrated figure, but he would exit that very same city as a criminal carrying his own implement of execution. I think it's interesting as we close out this morning, where did Jesus go after he got there? To the temple. This was the second temple. Actually, some scholars say it was the third temple. We can debate that until we're blue in the face because Herod added on to it and made it even bigger than it already was. But it was technically the second temple. The first temple was destroyed by the Babylonians hundreds of years before. It was rebuilt <clears throat> under Ezra and... Um, Oh, Zerubbabel. Say that three times fast. No, go ahead. Just kidding. Just kidding. <clears throat> and so now Jesus is standing in that less than grandiose temple, because Solomon's temple was 
beautiful. According to tradition and historical writings, nothing could compare to it. But that temple that Jesus walked into, though it wasn't Solomon's temple, was made beautiful and more beautiful than Solomon's because of who entered it. And Jesus, I find it interesting, he steps into there. <clears throat> he steps into that temple. And, and it, it, you get this, I get this picture, because I'm very visual when I read things. Is I get this picture of Jesus kind of just walking around looking around. He's a Jewish male. He's, he's able to enter several different courts. There are multiple different courts <clears throat> that if you were of a certain um, a certain uh, historical or cultural background, you could only enter to that point. If you were a female, you could, female Jew, you could enter into the next point. If you were a male Jew, you could enter into the next court. It's like getting closer and closer to the Holy of Holies. And so Jesus is walking around. He's checking things out. It's late in the afternoon. You know what Jesus does the very next day of Holy Week? I mean, he looked around the day before, just after entering to people saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, praise the Lord. He's entering his royalty. <clears throat> He's checking the place out. He's looking around. There's money changers over here. You can hear the clanging of coins as it's being exchanged for temple currency. You couldn't, you couldn't pay your temple tax or tithe with just any kind of silver or gold. It had to have the official temple stamp on it. So you had to go and get it changed to the proper currency. Much like we do when we go to different countries today, you have to switch out the currency. You know what was happening? It's called price gouging. Have you ever heard of that? So Jesus is watching money changers. They're going to up tax a little bit because in order for me to do this, I need to make a little money too, and that's fine, right? But they weren't just, you know, a standard price across the board. No, they were gouging them. <clears throat> and you have to pay this tax if you're there for Passover or you're coming to the temple. It's your duty to do that. Just like we have to pay, let's see, I don't know, it's April the 10th, five more days, right? You have to or they'll come hunting you down. Maybe, I don't know, who knows? Don't test it, all right? And so you have to do this. If you have to do it, and the only place you could change it over is in the temple, they got you over a barrel, don't they? But not only that, in the temple are merchants. They're selling different kinds of wares, W-A-R-E-S. Some of them are selling temple sacrifices, because guess what? You bring your sacrifice in from your flock, from outside of the community, and the, uh, the priests have to inspect your, your sacrifice. Are there any blemishes on it? Any spots? Does it have gunky eyes? No joke. Diseased eyes or anything diseased? Does it walk in crooked with a limp? If they could find anything, like a car inspection, if they could find anything, sorry, I still, after 10 years, haven't gotten used to car inspections. That's a different topic for a different time. But if they can find anything to get you on, they'll get it. Oh, your sacrifice isn't good enough. Sorry, buddy, you're going to have to go over to one of our approved merchants. They've got the right kind of sacrifice for you. You see what's happening? 
So Jesus is walking around and he's seeing all this happening. Guess where it's happening? It's happening in the court of the Gentiles. You've heard me talk about this before. The court of the Gentiles were God-fearing Gentile believers in God, the Jewish God. They still were considered unclean and unholy, but as a part of tradition and because God allowed it and desired all people to know him and for Abraham's descendants to be a blessing to all the nations, they kind of reluctantly gave in to that and had a, had a court for the Gentiles who came to believe in the Jewish God. Okay, if you want to worship here, uh, you can worship in this spot. Okay? Guess where they set up the money changers and the merchants? And you, as a God-fearing Gentile, which I would dare say most of us in this room or watching on TV are today, is we're Gentiles. We would have only been allowed to come to that location to worship Yahweh. I don't know about you, but I need complete silence when I'm reading, when I'm praying. It's hard for me. I am so, so easily distracted. I hear every noise. I smell every smell. I just am easily distracted. If I was a Gentile going into the temple courts, into the only place I was allowed to come worship and pray, to God, and I hear the bleating of sheep and birds in the sound here to my right, and money changers clang, 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 and the haggling back and forth. No, 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 you got to give me a better deal than that. Give me a better deal. Come on, no, 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 no. Come on, let me do that. Jesus is witnessing all this in the temple. He's, ex he's experiencing a sight for him that breaks his heart. And the next day, he comes into the temple, and he pretty much seals his fate. Because he braids a whip, and he drives out the money changers and the merchants. He flips over their tables. Coins go flying. Animals are scurrying everywhere. But it was chaotic before. He's trying to drive this stuff out of there. It's not supposed to be there. You remember what his reply was? My father's house is to be a house of prayer. And you've made it into a den of liars and cheats and thieves. Psalm 118, do you remember what they were chanting in the streets as Jesus was entering? Let's look at the next part of that. Not only were they saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, and praising God. In verse 27, they would have chanted this as well. The Lord is God, shining upon us. Take the sacrifice and bind it with cords on the altar. The very next verse after Hosanna. And Jesus is driving out the approved sacrifices and the approved currency, and he would become the sacrifice. Unblemished by sin. Truly holy beyond any other human that's ever walked the face of the earth. 
And he would not only fulfill that first part that we read in Psalm 118, but do you know what they would do? They would take him as the sacrifice. They would bind him and they would put him on an altar we know today as a cross. It says, you are my God and I will praise you. You are my God, I will exalt you. The one they would ultimately exalt is the one they would ultimately crucify. As Philippians chapter 2, Paul writes to the church at Philippi, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus enters the temple that day, the place where the blood sacrifices of animals are made as the Lamb of God as John the Baptist would say, who takes away the sin of the world. Let me close with this. Speaking of Palm Sunday, Oshetta Moore writes, it's the occasion on the, Christmas, or excuse me, on the Christian calendar when we commemorate Jesus' triumphal entry in Jerusalem. That's what Palm Sunday is. The concept of a triumph requires some explanation because it's foreign to modern believers. What is a triumph? A triumph has a ceremonial and a celebratory procession through the streets of a city. When the Romans wanted to celebrate their latest conquest, they would celebrate with a triumph. In fact, in 70 AD, just merely 40 years after Jesus had been crucified, resurrected, and ascended to heaven, the Romans would take over the city of Jerusalem under Roman general Titus. Do you know that today there is a monument in the city of Rome of the destruction of Jerusalem and the Roman soldiers carting out the menorah and the different implements of the temple? That temple has never been rebuilt. You can go to Jerusalem today and you can see the Temple Mount and the Wailing Wall where the Jews go to worship and to pray because the temple is no longer there, their place of worship. But Jesus echoes Jeremiah who said, there's coming a time where I won't dwell in those types of buildings, but I will dwell among my people and in their hearts. My temple will be them. You see, Jesus established that. See, Titus's triumph with the spoils from Jerusalem's temple is depicted on this monument. It's an arch in Rome. In this first Palm Sunday, Jesus wasn't the only person leading the procession into Jerusalem. There was another coming from the opposite side of the city. As legend has it, and there is good reason to believe there's historical veracity to this. I want you to hear this. Pontius Pilate would have been entering the city about the same time. Maybe it wasn't on the exact same day, but within a few days of that. Because, see, Pontius Pilate didn't like Jerusalem. He had this great palace in Caesarea. I mean, that wasn't just a summer villa. That was his main residence. He only went to Jerusalem on political matters and to keep the peace with the Jews. But it was a volatile city. The Romans pretty much did not like the Jews. They hated them in many respects. And so 
Pilate would only come into the city when he had to. And of course, this great Passover celebration, millions of pilgrims from the surrounding region would be coming into Jerusalem for the Passover. And he's like, i got to go into town. They're having this big celebration. If anything breaks out, I need to be there. Or Caesar will have my head. Augustus will have my head on a platter. So I'm going to go, and I'll be there, and I've got a palace there, blah, 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 blah. As he would have been entering the city in this great procession in Roman style, complete with terrifying display of Rome's military might. See, Pilate would have been perched atop this majestic stallion. He would have had all the trappings of Roman wealth and prestige. His procession was a proclamation of his and Rome's superiority. And it came with an undeniable message directed to the pilgrims in the city that week who had gathered in the city for the Passover festivities. You need to keep the peace or we will control you by force. And Jesus rides in on a donkey from the other end of town. And he maintains the peace by being the prince of peace who rides in on a donkey unassuming and humble, not conquering by force, but conquering sin by his death. Palm Sunday is a tradition, but it's not a tradition devoid of significance. Because it reminds us of that final week of Jesus as he enters Jerusalem for the final time to give his life as a ransom for the sins of many. As our worship team comes forward today and as we conclude, which kingdom are you a part of? Which kingdom are you a part of? Which kingdom is the most important kingdom to you? Is it your kingdom? The one you've established for yourself? Is it, uh, is it your job? Where you feel respected and revered? Unlike maybe your home. Maybe it's the position you hold within society. Is that your kingdom? Maybe you say, I'm a citizen of the United States of America, which is nothing to scoff at. But is that your kingdom? Maybe you stand with this kingdom or that kingdom. The only kingdom that's, that will last forever is the one Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. And before any other label you may place on yourself, the label of disciple of Jesus Christ should be the first and foremost. And it should be the guiding relationship and principle that drives every decision you make. You see, when Jesus came into the city, it was to fulfill the purpose of the will of the Father. And the will of the Father was to offer this gift of sacrifice and salvation to those who couldn't save themselves. As a matter of fact, they would be ones who would be jeering and condemning Jesus. And yet he died for them nonetheless. There are people today that reject Jesus to their dying breath. There is no God 
I am the maker of my own destiny. I would rather give my, hand, give my life into the hands of one who holds the whole world in his hands than to give it to myself and end up with the ramifications of the world I create, which are almost all the time imperfect. This Palm Sunday, do you worship the kings of this world? Do you worship yourself, your family, your children, your job, your success, your money, or the pursuit of it if you don't have it? Or do you worship the one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills and for him there is nothing that is impossible? Our altars are open. Again, as I say every week, you can come to my right, your left, and you can be prayed for here. We have great prayer warriors who will take you to the foot of the cross and will plead your case before God. And if you just want to reckon with God alone, you can come to my left, your right, and kneel over here. And again, I ask every week, don't leave this place without having that relationship with Christ. It takes one step. He took so many steps in our directions. All he desires is one step in his, which usually requires us turning away from everything else and moving in his direction. That's called repentance. Would you pray with me? Father, it still boggles the mind how the death of one man can bring salvation to so many over countless generations. But isn't that the glory of who you are? To give us something we don't deserve and to deal with something once and for all that we ourselves could never deal with, the problem of sin and death. It seems like things we set our hands to, God, oftentimes fall apart or we mar them in some way. But God, you came to give us life and to give it to us abundantly. And through Jesus Christ, we can have salvation. And we do stand in awe of that. I pray that none of us take that for granted today, but that it drives us to our knees in worship of you, the maker and creator of all things. We surrender our lives to you today, Heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, and we pray your Holy Spirit would reside within us to fill us overflowing, and then help us to go make disciples by preaching the good news in the world around us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand as we close? Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.